Well, today we are beginning a series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. I'm very excited. Isaiah is one of those books that I treasure the most in the Bible. But I wonder how you felt during that reading. I imagine there are a range of responses. Perhaps you don't really know anything about about Isaiah, and so it's all a bit confusing. Perhaps the reading felt long and wordy, and as you flick forward in your Bible, you discover that we only read one chapter of 66. Perhaps you've tried to get into Isaiah before, but it feels like such a huge mountain to climb. Or perhaps, like me recently, you've begun to climb that mountain, and you've experienced some of the views, even if only the ones from the lowest trails, and how they can take your breath away. Isaiah has always been considered one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, a literary masterpiece. Some early Christian authors even called it the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. Because no other book draws together the themes of the Old Testament and begins looking forward to the new, like Isaiah. But it's little use me just saying this to you. I want to show you why Isaiah is worth reading. One author compares Isaiah to a great work of music, or perhaps a a grand musical. Themes and motifs slowly introduced that weave their way through, building up to wonderful climaxes. And then these opening chapters are a bit like the overture. Maybe you know that feeling of excitement, sitting in the theatre and those first familiar notes of the orchestra ringing out. The overture, introducing the themes, preparing our ears, giving a taster of the whole. Well, that's what these first opening chapters, that's what we have. In embryonic form, the message of the whole, the taste of the excitement. But let's just step back for a moment, because Isaiah isn't like a self-contained work of fiction. It's actually a message to a real people in a particular turning point in history. Verse 1, if you've got your Bibles, page 685. Let's look at verse 1 together to see the context. The vision. 66 chapters, one vision, one message from God through his prophets, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Take a look at this map. By this point in history, the nation had been split into two, with the northern kingdom, known as Israel in purple, and then the southern kingdom, with its capital, Jerusalem, known as Judah in brown. In Isaiah, we're focused on the southern, the Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 1 continues... The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. A lot of kings, a lot of chapters. Now, I read this, when I read this list of kings first, this didn't mean much to me. I'm not sure. Maybe it does to you. You can go and read about all these kings in 2 Kings 15 to 20. But here's a summary. Uzziah He was all right. During his reign, God granted the nation peace. And so the people uh, prospered economically. 
until the king died in 740 BC. However, the wealth wasn't properly distributed. The rich got richer, the poor were ignored, while cultic and idolatrous worship was also common. And so as Uzziah dies, as one writer puts it, the nation was ripe for judgment. That's when Isaiah was called to his ministry. Then suddenly, their peace and stability became a lot more precarious. The growing Assyrian nation up off the top of our map, they got a new leader, Tiglath-Pileser III, and he had ambitions for conquest. The arrows on our diagram show us some of his early campaigns. Eventually, he would go on to capture Israel, the northern kingdom, and take the people there into exile. Now this probably seems very far away from where we are today, 21st century England. Perhaps you're wondering how this can be relevant for us. The Scots aren't about to invade. But what if I told you that the big question during the reigns, particularly of Isaiah and Hezekiah, was what were they going to do about this growing threat from the north? Or put another way, who were they going to trust? Themselves? With their powerful neighbours and allies? Or when disaster strikes, were they going to trust God? You see, their physical problem was actually a spiritual problem. And we in Christ have the same spiritual problem. Will we trust God? Well, that's the question we're heading for. God willing, we'll get there in July. But we need to start where Isaiah starts. Chapter 1, as the violins raise their bows, the conductor her baton, in suspense for that first note, those first themes of the opening overture that will build into a grand masterpiece. Well, Isaiah introduces two key themes in chapter 1. The first is this. Our sin is worse than we know. Our sin is worse than we know because our sin is more serious than we realize. I wonder if you think of yourself as a sinner. Perhaps that's not a word you've used to describe yourself before. Perhaps it is. But either way, it's natural to think that we're not that bad, isn't it? We're not in prison serving time for murder or assault? Sure, we tell the odd lie at work to smooth over our clients, or we change track in the street to avoid eye contact with that needy person asking for help. But surely that's not that bad. But then in comes Isaiah, preaching, remember, to his comfortable, prosperous, nice audience. And he sets up a courtroom. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. Not just a small claims court. The jury stretches to the universe. The charge, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Not lying, not ignoring needs, not even murder, but rebellion. And not any rebellion, the rebellion of a child against their loving father. Verse 3, the ox knows his master, the donkey 
his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do, do, do not understand. The Lord God, he's raised his children, he's provided bountifully for them. But here, they make even the dumbest animals look intelligent. They've forgotten God. They've forgotten who their dad is. It goes on. Verse 4, sinful, guilty, a brood of evildoers, corrupt. But what's really broken their father's heart? They've turned their backs on him. Do you see, it's not a picture of a, a nagging or grumpy father. It's a weeping father. A father who laments his children, who've forgotten who he is. It's a sad picture. Because at the heart of sin, it's not a collection of little mess-ups here and there. At the heart of sin is sticking two fingers up to our father and walking away for good. Our sin is worse than we know because it's more serious than we realize. It's also more damaging. Isaiah gives us the image of a person beaten but not realizing. Verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. It's like Rocky Balboa from that 70s film if you know it. He just keeps on taking the beatings. But here it's not a strategy. They don't need to keep going back for more, but for some reason they do. And it gets worse. Verse 6, open sores, wounds throbbing with pain, and not even bothering to bandage or soothe them. And then Isaiah changes the picture in verse 7, to a city burned with fire, fields stripped but then, verse 8, and then, verse 8, the, the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. That glorious city with its temple, one of the great buildings of the ancient world, reduced to a hut in a vineyard. Now what's going on here? On first reading, it sounds like this is describing Judah and Jerusalem in real life. And certainly, as Isaiah goes on, Jerusalem starts to look quite a bit like this. But I think the way this is put at the start of Isaiah, it's more figurative, like a warning. He's speaking to a people who feel comfortable, healthy, successful, and he's saying, you're not. Open your eyes. As God's people, you should be a glorious royal priesthood, but instead your sin is leaving you beaten and bruised, destroyed and desolate. And you keep going back for more. Isn't this true today? As a nation, we've turned away from God. We've embraced the gods of individualism, focusing on myself rather than community or God, doing what feels right for me, and we think we're better off for it. But then there's loneliness, and young people are left feeling like they need to discover who they are in themselves, but unable to work it out, how to do it. 
Anxiety and mental illness levels soar, but our culture doubles down, delves deeper into its rebellion against God. That's just one example. What about the harm of the sexual revolution, for instance? Broken families, abused women, corrupted boys. But it's not just out there, it's in here. The lusts, the desires, we know are bad for our bodies, are bad for our souls. But we keep going back. It's not that bad, just once more. And so we return to the battering. In Deuteronomy, Moses laid out blessings for obeying God's law and curses for disobeying. And it wasn't because he was some sort of power-hungry dictator who must be obeyed. No. But because he's a loving father who's read the instruction manual to life. Indeed, he wrote the instruction manual to life. And he knows what's best. So these curses were there so that when his children started to stray into the nettles, they'd get stung and brought back to the path of life. But then when we persist in straying, we become desensitized. We think we're living the good life, but really we don't know how much better we could be having it. Our sin is worse than we know because it's more damaging than we realize. But then I wonder if, at this point, you think, yeah, sure, but this isn't us. We come to church, we sing songs of worship, we pray, this isn't us. Or in Old Testament language, we bring our sacrifices, our bulls and goats to God, and that's how God forgives us. He told us to do it in Leviticus. We'll see what God says to these people of Judah, what he thought of their sacrifices. Verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. He then calls their coming to church just like the noise of many feet. Verse 12, this trampling of my courts. And it gets worse over the page. Verse 14, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, all things that God told them to do, by the way, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. It's like God is saying... Do I have to go to church today? I mean, you'd expect this kind of language if he was talking about terrorism or abuse. But worship? That worship is the thing that his soul hates. Of course, it's not just any worship. It's hollow worship. Worship that's not an overflow of repentance and forgiveness. Here, it's just worship that's a cover-up. For you see, our sin is worse than we know because it's more hidden than we know. We come to church and act all nice. We give the veneer that we don't struggle with the evil of our hearts. We hide our sin. 
Indeed, we're such experts at hiding our sin that we even hide it from ourselves. But someone might look nice on the outside, a respectable churchgoer, someone even like me standing here in clerical clothes talking about God. But then, verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. It's shocking. I can stand here, my hands spread out in prayer, a posture of holiness. But God might not listen, does not listen, because he sees the reality. He sees the truth. The end of verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. Stretched out hands, but red with blood. For if, verse 17, we do what is wrong, our hands are bloody. If we don't seek justice or encourage the oppressed, if we don't defend the cause of the fatherless or plead the case of the widow, and just look out for number one. And actually that is our natural state. Theologians talk about the total depravity of sin. That we, left to ourselves, are totally depraved. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. No, in God's grace, he restrains our wickedness. Rather, it means that in every area of our lives and our personalities, we're infested, infested with sin, corrupted within And yet we're really good at hiding it. We socialize ourselves. Because if I showed the world who I truly was, if I gave free reign to my sin, it'd not only be embarrassing, it would be greatly damaging. I would spiral down into a pit that would ruin my life and the lives of those around me. I think it'd be well worth praying through these verses. I suspect still many of us are thinking, yeah, but I'm not that bad. But we can all think of people who seemed good and respectable before their utter falls from grace. If we don't truly believe that we have it in ourselves to do some of the worst things imaginable, then we haven't understood the depths of our depravity, the gravity of our sin. Our sin is worse than we know. It's sin that alienates us from our Heavenly Father, that leaves us beaten and bruised, but in denial. And we hide it all through layers of good deeds and religion that actually turn the living God away from us in disgust. That is the human condition. We need to know it because without the diagnosis, we won't be able to find the cure. So the first theme that Isaiah introduces, our sin is worse than we know, but then the second, God's grace is greater than we could imagine. By this point, we might have forgotten who's talking. It's a judge, but he's also a father. A broken-hearted father who aches for his children. So then out of nowhere, 
an invitation is made. Take a look at these wonderful words in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, the color of blood, they shall be like wool. The guilt of the defendant is established. It's plain for all to see. We've come to the crisis point, but then the judge makes an offer. And it's not just a plea bargain, but a total pardon. How can it be total forgiveness, cleansing for sin, forgetting all the wrong, wiping the slate clean, complete and total forgiveness? And all they had to do was say, Okay, okay, I'll give up my rebellion. I'll return home like the prodigal son. It's wonderful. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian here, this is probably the grace that you're used to, that you expect. But I said God's grace is greater than we could imagine. And yes, total pardon is unexpected and unbelievable. But I think Isaiah actually takes it a step further. In verses 21 to 26, God returns to his lament. The lament of Jerusalem. It's as if his offer of forgiveness has made no difference. No change of heart. So he laments And as the judge, he turns to judgment. But then, see what happens. I'll read from verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. Their sin is like adultery. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. You know, that sin that promises to spice up life, it dilutes and ruins. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares. Here it is. The moment of judgment. If we truly understand the gravity of their crimes, of our crimes forsaking the living God, then we know that a sentence of destruction, it would be fair. So here goes. Ah, I will get relief from my foes, yes, and avenge myself from my enemies, yeah. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross. Huh? And remove all your impurities. Hold on. This doesn't quite seem right. God's moment of judgment and there's purifying. It's the image of crude oil passed through the furnace to leave refined, pure metal, removing impurities. What's going on? And then verse 26, I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning, Afterwards, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the city, the faithful city. 
It's a complete reversal. Somehow, as the judge brings down his gavel and turns his hand against his people, it's an act that does something else. In fact, it does two things. It does judge, but it also purifies. It restores, or in the words of verse 27, it redeems. The words in Hebrew at the start of verses 25 and 26, they're actually the same words. I will turn in judgment, I will restore. The same word, the same act, one act. It's the most unlikely circumstance that at the heights of the wrath and anger of God, his goodness, his redeeming grace shine through. Well, this is just the beginning of the overture, the opening motifs, as it were. Our sin is worse than we know, but God's grace is even greater than we can imagine. For even when his people are so hard-hearted that when offered a clean slate, they still can do nothing but stubbornly wallow in the filth of their sin, the Lord is determined. He will purify. He will restore. And nothing will stop him. But we need to read on. For how can God justly forgive? How will God turn a stubborn people into a city of righteousness? Eventually Isaiah will get there. Eventually he'll tell us of a servant who took up our infirmities. Who carried our sorrows. Who felt the judgment of God. Who was stricken and afflicted. And yet through it brought us peace. And through it brought us healing. Grace shining through judgment. But for us in chapter 1, we're left with this question. Will we come to our senses? It may be there are some here watching online for who you don't yet know God's forgiveness. Perhaps that's because you don't yet know your guilt, the true depths of your sin. Will you come to your senses and recognize your rebellion against God? But then for all of us too, there are ways in which we need to realize our sin, the damage it does to our lives. And it's good time and again to come back to these truths to remember our great need. But we don't stop there. Because by feeling the depths of our sin, we come to experience that grace that is even greater than we could imagine. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Our Father, might this be true for each one of us here this morning. That your name might be glorified among us. And that we might know the depths of your forgiveness and grace to each one of us. Amen. Amen.